Well, good morning, church. It has already been such an incredible morning, and I'm now super pumped, super excited, and glad that we have this time together in God's Word. Um, So to start, uh, during this past Christmas break, I had the privilege to go to Houston, Texas to see my parents, the great city of Houston, Texas, yes, and I just got to get away, have some good family time. Um, spent some quality time with them. And some of the things that we got to do, for example, was that we got to go to a lot of coffee shops because my parents know I'm a pretty big coffee snob, some may say. Um, we got to go to a science museum. We got to even go to a Houston Rockets game. And it was, it was awesome. It was so cool. And while we were in Houston, something that I noticed as we were there is that there were so many different cultures around us. I mean, we, we went to an Israeli restaurant. We went to a, a Chinese restaurant. We were walking the sidewalks, and we heard people passing by speaking in French. And it was cool. There's the different peoples, the different cultures, the different languages being spoken around us. And in that moment, I couldn't help but think of Babel in Genesis 11, because it didn't used to be like how it was in Houston, where there were people from different nations and tribes, and tongues, and languages all around us. And so the text that we're going to be in this morning gives us a glimpse into the story of Babel, where after the flood, before everyone on the earth was dispersed, everyone used to live together, and they used to all have one common language. And so even though this this Tower of Babel story is a very well-known story, it's a very famous story, It's also a very challenging and eye-opening story because in the span of these nine verses, there's so much gold packed in there. There's so much to take away. There's so much to learn, and it's also very interesting. And so I'm very excited for us to dive into this. And so if you guys have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 11 1 through 9, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And if you do not have a Bible, there should be one under your seat, and you guys can keep that one as well as a gift from us. And the title for this sermon is How Man's Pride Led to Christ's Praise. How Man's Pride Led to Christ's Praise. And if you're taking notes, our text this morning breaks up into two sections Uh, We see two points from these first nine verses. Point number one, man's sinful plan in verses one through four. Man's sinful plan, point two, God's response in verses five through nine. And from these two points, from this Bible story, we will get to learn and we'll get to see a deeper glimpse into, first off, our own human nature. Secondly, we'll get to see a glimpse into the character of our God as we just worshiped. And lastly, we'll get to see how this story of man's pride and sin at Babel ultimately points to Christ's praise. And so let's jump into it. Man's sinful plan, verses 1 through 4, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so as we see from this, the beginning of this story, the story starts off with an introduction kind of in verse 1, where we read that everyone at this moment on the face of the earth spoke one language, same words, they were speaking with ease to each other. And after the flood, this united group of people migrated from the east to a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And now there's, there's something interesting to note in verse 2, is that it says that they settled. They settled. And at first glance, when I first read this, I you know, paid no mind to it, paid no attention to it. But it turns out that this very minute detail is actually very significant. Because instead of dispersing everywhere after the flood, they wanted to pack together. They were clumping together and they settled. But what were they actually doing here is that they were actually disobeying God. From verse 2, we start seeing that they're disobedient. We see the first trace of their sin. And we know that, that they are disobeying God if we look back to Genesis chapter 9. Because if you remember back to Genesis 9, as Drew brought us through, it turns out that after the flood... In Genesis 9, 1, God gave man the same commands he did in Genesis 1 and blessed Noah, told his sons to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then God repeats what he said again in Genesis 9, 6, and 7 and says that they were made in the image of God, which is a beautiful thing. And again, that they should go out, be fruitful, multiply. And so from this, we can conclude that Noah's sons, they knew that they were made in the image of God and that they were designed to go out, disperse over the globe and spread God's glory, spread his character, spread his love and fill the earth. But instead in verse two, as we see, they settled. And so they were blatantly disobeying God. They said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna take a pass on that God, you know, just kind of, gave God the stiff arm, and they thought that they were wiser than God and chose to do what they wanted to do instead of following the Lord's commands, which, if we all think about it, sounds pretty similar to what Adam and Eve did, right? They thought that they knew it was best for themselves and disregarded what God had told them. And so the Babylonians As we see, they're already off to a tough start. And moving forward, they settled in this place called Shinar, which is in between the Euphrates and the Tigris. In verse 3, we read, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And so these people decided to invent something new. They put their thinking caps on. They said, You know what we're going to do? We're going to make bricks. And we're going to kiln burn them. We're going to bake bricks in the fire. And so we see that they didn't have stone, but that was okay because they decided to harden these bricks and then use bitumen, which is this sticky black, you know, tar substance to hold the bricks together. And so when I read that, I just immediately thought of Legos, like they were pretty much inventing Legos back then. And so very 
awesome invention. But then sadly, when we come to verse 4, we start to see the demise of this group even more. We get to see the true intentions in their hearts. And we start seeing their sinful nature even more. In verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so some may think that this is awesome, right? Like, oh, like, look at them. Like, they're, they're working together, you know, they're, they're team building. They've got that teamwork going for them, you know. They're, they're, I mean, their minds are coming together, and that's awesome. Like, go them, right? But honestly, this, this actually isn't the case. Because the reality is that these people were uniting together to build their own kingdom apart from God. They chose to go from that first invention of making those bricks, right, to then using those bricks to invent and make this great city and this great tower, not for God's glory, but for their own glory. And we see that this desire to build this city and tower was bred out of sin. And so let's dive a little bit deeper into their intentions behind this project. We see that there are three reasons that they decide to build this city and tower. Number one, they wanted to have a tower with its top in the heavens. Number two, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And then number three, they didn't want to be dispersed. They did not want to be dispersed. And from these three huge reasons, we learn from these Babylites a little bit more about our own sinful human nature. And so to start off, going back to the first reason, they wanted to have a tower in the heavens. And the downfall that we see here is that, yet again, they're following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. They were trying to be like God. They were saying, come on, guys, let's, let's not just have a, a tower that scrapes the sky. No, let's go high above it, right? Let's have a tower that rivals God, and let's be above him, right? And Sally, this, when, I, when I read this, this is a bit relatable. You know, is it not? It's, I mean, there, there have been many times in my life where I know what God's word says. I know what he says but I want to take the reins of my own life because I think I know sometimes what's best for me. And so I build my own, you know, quote unquote, little tower to try and make myself the master of my life. And to to be honest, there hasn't been one time where that's worked out, right? There has not been one time. And I bet that all of us can relate to that as well. Secondly, the Babylites wanted to make a name for themselves, right? And we see that this sinful desire here is that these people were, were prideful. They were bathing in their pride. They wanted all the glory, all the praise. Their goal was human glorification. They didn't need God. They wanted to be above him, right? To have a monument in the sky for all to see that they were praiseworthy. And the tough part about this sin of pride is that it is still so prevalent today. From, from Babel and from the fall in Genesis 3, even all the way to now, we humans, we're still struggling with pride. 
this sinful desire is in every single one of us. And there's not a day that goes by where I have to battle this desire that I want today and I want this life to be about me, right? Like me, 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 you know, I want people to like me. I want people to look up to me. I want people to think that I'm awesome, right? All about me and the list can go on for all of us if we truly get real with ourselves. And so my challenge for all of us right now is that we all need to genuinely ask ourselves when it really comes down to it, what are you really priding yourself in? What do you boast in? Is it in the amount of money that's in the savings account? It could be in your athleticism, right? could be in your, your looks, maybe your house, maybe the job that you've had, you know? You can insert a number of things in those blanks, but what do you pride yourself in? And so growing up, for example... Um, kind of funny, but uh, all I wanted to be growing up was an NBA player. Uh, that was that was a dream, and we can all see where that turned out. Um, but I wanted to be I wanted to be jacked, you know. I wanted to be shredded. I wanted to be six three, you know, starting point guard. I wanted to be the next Allen Iverson, the next LeBron James, even. And um, sometimes I would. You know, growing up, I would stand in front of the mirror and I'd be like, I'd be flexing, you know, I'd just be like, you know, checking myself out, you know, for all the muscle that I had. And um, I remember my mom being the amazing mom that she is. She would just see me flex in the mirror and she would look at me and like jokingly but lovingly she would say, remember Ben, pride always comes before the fall, (laughs) right? Has anyone's mom ever said that to them? Yeah, yeah, maybe just me. But (laughs) pride always comes before the fall. And the truth is that she was just trying to love me to the truth that my identity and my pride shouldn't be in myself, but it should be in the Lord. It should be in the Lord. And every time I was like, okay, mom, okay, I know, yeah, I know. But it turns out that that phrase is not only true, but it's it's literally a proverb as well. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the truth about our God is that he knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for us. God is not some cosmic killjoy in the air that wants to take away goodness from us. No, he is a loving heavenly father who cares so much for his children that he goes forward and pursues us and says, guys, this is what is good for you. This is what is good for you. And it's clear all throughout all of God's word that he wants us and warns us to to not give into our pride, right? But wants us to pride ourselves in him. And then his son. He wants us to steer clear away from being consumed by the pride in our hearts. But from the story, as we're back to the story, we see that these Babylites, they were being consumed by their pride. And lastly, the third reason for them building this city and tower is they wanted to prevent themselves from being dispersed. They didn't want to go anywhere. And so from this statement, we 1,000% know 
that man knew what God's command was in Genesis 9-1, to be fruitful and multiply. And we see that these Babylites, they were being defiant. They were disobeying God straight up. And God wanted his people to be, you know, nomadic image bearers. But these Babylites turned a blind eye to that, that command, and they wanted to be sedentary. They, they loved their security. They, they didn't want to fill the earth and take that risk. And they wanted to go with the comfortable and safe solution. You know, they wanted to do their own thing. And I think I can speak for all of us in saying that we all have felt that, have been, that, been there before, right? There are many times in God's word where he calls his children to actually do some hard things, right? You know, go, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Luke 9, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew 5, and we have to make a decision between choosing comfort, choosing our own ways, oh, this is, what, this is what's going to actually be good for me, or looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I trust you. I know your ways are perfect, and we trust his righteous ways and commands. Because as again, as said, he knows what is best for us. But these Babylites, they sadly chose their comfort. And so they built this city. They wanted to corral themselves in their security instead of obeying the Lord to be fruitful and multiply. And so from these these first four verses, we see that this Babel project was all about being self-sufficient apart from God. It was a tower of independence. It was man's prideful project. And so what what do we do with this? What, What should we take away from these first four verses? I think that the most illuminating thing that we can glean from these first four verses is seeing our depravity, seeing our sinful nature, feeling the weight, the true weight of our sin. Because as we just saw, we are actually just as sinful as these Babylites. You know, I, I hate to say it, but like we are. If we were all there at Babel, we would all be building that city and tower as well. We would be hauling the bricks. We would be laying the tar. We would be the crew chiefs of that whole operation. And we would because we're full of sin, right? We are are born into this world sinful. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says that, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the truth that I've been telling myself all week is that it is not until we see how broken and sinful that we are that we then see that our only hope is in the Lord. It's not until we understand and feel the weight of our sin that we then see that truly our only hope is in the Lord. That's one of the beautiful parts about this Bible story is that we see our need for a Savior. 
and that's Jesus Christ. We get to look to the one who is good. We look to the one who can save us from our sins, from the grips of the enemy, right? We look to the one who can give us actual hope and actual life. Because God, he loved us so much. He wanted relationship with his children so much so that he pursued us by sending his only son, Jesus, to come down and live a perfect life here, to die for us while we were still in our sin and to take all of our sin, all of us in this room, all throughout the history of the world, past, present, future, take it upon himself and be a perfect sacrifice for us to rise then from the dead and defeat the power of sin and death to where we can have hope in him. That through Jesus, if we trust and believe in him, we can be saved from the punishment of this sin that we have. And we can have life with Jesus. Which that is good news. That is good news. And once we're saved, we start getting sanctified. The more and more that we start walking with Jesus in this life, the more we start dying to our sin and pride, that pride that these Babylites had that we have, and we start becoming molded more and more into living like Christ. And we can realize, man, what what am I doing priding in myself and what I have and boasting in me? And instead, we can make Galatians 6.14 kind of the anthem of our life, that far be it from me to boast in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ, boasting in the Christ and the cross and him crucified. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so that's how these first four four verses point to Christ and our need for him. And so back to Babel, what does God do? What does God do after verse four? How does God respond to man's prideful plan to build their own kingdom and defy him? Starting in verse 5, point to God's response. Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And so I actually, like, when I first read this, I laughed because I think this verse is so awesome because we know that these Babylites, they wanted to be taller and higher than, their, than God, right? They wanted to rival God with their tall tower. They wanted their name to be above God's. But we see in this verse, it's so funny because the Lord says that he went down to see it. To see this little cute, you know, adorable little tower. This little Lego tower that man had built out of their pride. And now obviously we don't need to get mixed up, you know. Like, of course God sees everything. We know that, we know that in the Bible. But obviously... The author here is using a sort of irony to suggest that the Lord had to come down to even see this little tower, right? And so what's God going to do with this? God goes forward, he moves forward and says in verse 6, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what that they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Now, if we stop with verse six, 
some may think, you know, that God was kind of caught off guard, may have been surprised by this emergence of Babel, right? It says, this is only the beginning of what that they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Was God threatened by Babel? We know as followers of the Lord and as students of the word, we know that scripture must interpret scripture, right? Scripture must interpret scripture. And all misunderstandings with verse six can get cleared up and cleared away with truths found all over the word that God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing. Psalm 145 and Psalm 139 especially, they detail that God's understanding and knowledge is beyond measure and that he is over all and through all and he's in all, knowing past, present, and future. And so God, God for sure knew that Babel would happen, but what he's getting at here in verse 6 is that God knew that if this united group of humanity kept building and collaborating and working on this this utopia bred out of their sin, that they would actually end up fully abandoning God and that they would leave no room for the kingdom of God and that they would actually end up destroying themselves. Right As we know from, from assessing the own sin in our own lives, that's what sin does, right? Our sin leaves us feeling empty, you know, unsatisfied, unfulfilled, broken, down. And the Babylites thought that if they could just build this city and tower, that they would actually build themselves up. But God knew that they would actually be tearing themselves apart. Donald Goen spoke on this. This, was, this quote uh, makes a ton of sense. He says, for all its aspiration, Babel, like any human engineering feat, poses no threat to God. Not that it makes God insecure, but that it sets man on a new path of self-confining self-destruction. Man's increasing ambition and power don't threaten God, they threaten man himself, because the more power they are able to concentrate, the more harm they will be able to do to themselves and to the world. And, and God didn't want to see that happen, right? Right? God didn't want to see that happen. So God responds in verse 7 and 8 and says that they need that they're going to confuse their language and disperse them over the face of all the earth so that they would stop building the city due to them not being able to understand each other. And the awesome part is that in these two verses we see a glimpse into the beautiful character of our God. We kind of get a, a mini case study here into God's character because these Babylites, they were filled with sin. They were super disobedient. And so God could have, you know, like easily squashed them, right, because of their disobedience. But instead, God showed a beautiful blend of both judgment and mercy. God showed judgment on them by dispersing them over the, over the face of the earth, confusing their language to where they couldn't keep building this, this kingdom for themselves. But then he also showed his faithfulness to his children and his mercy by saving them from their own disaster. And this is the same character that we see 
in our Lord with Jesus and the gospel, right? God poured his judgment down on his own son on the cross so that through Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us, God could show his grace and mercy to his children for their salvation through faith. Like, that's the gospel. Like, that is, that is the good news. And it just shows how good our God is. And so our last verse, verse 9, says, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so as we see, humanity went from one language and one unified group to many, many, many languages and groups spread all over the earth. And the only name that this group actually made for themselves was Babel, which God named the place, which means confusion or mixing. Because God turned their words pretty much into Babel, you know, to where they couldn't understand each other. Now here is what just fires me up. This is what gets me amped. There, there are sometimes, it's actually a lot of times, um, when I'm reading God's word and I, I figure something out, I find something out, and I just like let out a fist pump, you know? I'm just like, let's go, you know? Like, it just gets me hyped. Here's what's incredible about this story. God uses man's pride in this story and sin at Babel ultimately to point to the praise of Christ. And we see this an incredible story in the New Testament. Listen to this. In Babel, in Genesis 11, this story points all the way to Pentecost in Acts 2. Pentecost was God's reversal of Babel. And so if you, if you take your Bible and flip to the New Testament, in Acts 2, you will see that Jesus just ascended, right? He just died on the cross for the sins of all, right? And rose again, defeating death, rose from that grave, praise the Lord. And he spent some time with his followers, his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven and will come back again. But before he ascended, he told his, his followers to wait in Jerusalem, for they were about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and so as you read in Acts 2, there's masses and masses of people in Jerusalem from all over the world. There's people from Medes, it says. There's people from Mesopotamia, from Egypt, from Libya, from Rome, and Asia, all over. And they're, they're here in Jerusalem because something's happening, right? And on the day of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit came down and filled the believers. And these, these believers started speaking. And the miraculous thing is that the people from those different places could understand what the believers were saying in their own languages. People from all over the world in one place being able to understand each other because the Holy Spirit gave them understanding and unity. And everyone was shocked by it. Like the, the text says they were bewildered because it was a miracle. These people filled with the Holy Spirit, as Acts 2.11 says, that what they were speaking about was they were telling everyone of the mighty works of God. 
They were telling everyone of the mighty works of God. All of them from all over the world unified there together for the glory of God. And they were given language to where they could all understand each other for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ being shared to those many different people groups in that day. Like the good news just happened and God brings them together from all over to hear the good news of Jesus. And by the end of that day, Acts 2.41 says that there were about 3,000 people who repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Like that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And then what happens, a a few chapters later, crazy thing in Acts 8, persecution starts. These Christians start getting persecuted, which dispersed these people again who just heard the gospel back to their own countries, their own nations, so that they could bring the gospel back to their people and tell them of Jesus and tell them of the life and salvation found in Jesus. And this, this just begs us and, and stirs our heart to the hope of the kingdom of God where all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from every tribe, nation, and tongue who will come together and worship the Lord forever. And so in conclusion, what we learned from Babel, first off, is that we don't have to have it all together, and we don't have it all together. That we are sinful creatures, and that we are in need of a Savior, and that's Jesus. And the gospel leaves no room for us to stake pride in our own selves, but only leaves us with the incredible joy to boast in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see that God used used man's prideful plans in this story at Babel, ultimately, to spread his children all over the world, to bring Jesus down, and then up again, and then to bring his people back together to hear of Jesus, hear what he's done, to where, again, we can eventually unite all together to praise our Lord, Savior, and King Jesus. And so from that truth, my encouragement for all of us is that this week and for the rest of our lives, that we are anchored in our faith in Christ, that we feel the weight of our sin, and we say, thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And that we can go out into this community, out into Santa Cruz, into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and tell people about Jesus and the good news. Amen. Let's pray.